Hello, Mrs. Lloyd. Oh, hello, Marcel. Hello. Now, do you have a plan for what we're about to do? No, I don't. I have yeah, no, neither do I. I have no idea what's about to happen. All I know is we're going to talk about Dracula. Yes. Now, Dracula, you have recently read, right? I recently reread it. Now, I read it once when I was a teenager and haven't read it since. I had forgotten everything about it. Yeah, I've, I read it about five, six years ago, along with a bunch of other stuff like Jekyll and Hyde. So it's all it's all a bit of a Victorian uh, horror mush to me. A little, little bit of a sort of gothic soup. Yeah. What would be? What else would be in that soup? Maybe, a, you know, yeah. a little bit of Frankenstein, a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe. A little bit of Oscar Wilde in there too for me. Yeah. Oh, uh, Dorian Gray. Wildcard. Well yeah, yeah, well, Dorian Gray. Very good. It's very good. Well, it's it's interesting though, isn't it, that a lot of these stories were written at different times. Enough of a stretch between them that even though they are part of the same tapestry of stories, they're they're very distinct. They're very much speaking to uh, the culture of their time and the specificity of what life was and what fears were. But. Dracula is so entrenched in all of our culture now, right? And all of these characters, like Dorian Gray, like Frankenstein, they all exist as this, like, Avengers of uh, monster movies. Uh, You've just made me think of so many things that I want to say. First of all, I think you're absolutely right. They're very distinct. They reflect different time periods, but they all feel like they absolutely belong together. And Hmm. one of the reasons I feel like they belong together is that they use horror as a commentary. Whether they, whether when they were actually written that was a conscious thing or not, they're definitely, you know, Dracula isn't really about a vampire. It's about what a vampire might represent. Frankenstein is, you know, about what a monster might represent. Like, they all have that in common. The other yeah. thing, the, the other thing, another thing, is um, that I really enjoy about them is that they're very much genre fiction we might have to explain what we mean by genre fiction Mm. uh so they're so they're horror and because they're horror they abide by particular rules but they sort of like highbrow and a bit literary whereas you'd normally think of anything that falls into a genre like horror as being a bit pulpy and lowbrow and popular Mm. they're all literary and i think that's very interesting about them well there is a weirdness that so you say vampires, the first one that most people will think of is Dracula. Mm. But you've also got everything from uh, Count Count to Mona the Vampire to uh, video games like um, like Vampire, where we're taking these tropes of characters and really the mythology of vampires has existed long before Dracula. Mm hundreds and hundreds of years so far back that when we tried to dig it out recently we had a lot of trouble right because all of the different parts of it are coming from all different parts of the world and they all blend together to eventually reach the point of a character like Dracula who sets a tone for everything that comes after but it's really interesting that while a lot of things like Mona the Vampire and can I say Count Ducula Yes, Count Dracula is a brilliant one. A lot of these other vampires and a lot of Dracula movies now are treated as sort of trashy, uh, pop culture Mm -hmm. fare, very much blockbuster movies. A lot of the time they don't do particularly well at the cinema and they never get sequels. And that's, you know, it's all about the money making. Mm. But that 
I, I don't want to say origin point because Bram Stoker's Dracula isn't the origin of it. But it is this focal point where everything's fed into it and everything feeds out. Dracula is treated with such regard and such esteem, even by people who play down the quality of it. Mm. It's such an important moment in history. I think it's. I think the other thing about that that's very interesting is you think of the text of Dracula as the place where those archetypal vampires come from, and that so that uh, the cloak that particularly peculiar hairline that you think of Dracula have, as having the fangs, you think of the, all of that as coming from the book and this kind of gentleman monster. Reading the book, one of the things that really surprised me is how absent he is from the text as a character. It's not really about Dracula, it's about all of the people around them. And actually the only real monster in it that you really get to see do something gory and disgusting is Lucy. Like, to me, that book is all about Lucy. And that's very strange. The other thing about that, which um, I think is sort of fascinating, uh, is a lot of those things that you think of as archetypal vampire things, and you think of as coming from Bram Stoker's text, some of them do, but some of them really don't. So for instance, um, something I learned recently, which is such a great fact, is the high collar that quite often, you know, Count Ducula has it, for instance, that high mm. colour on the cloak, is to do with a very early theatre production of Dracula, mm. and it was to protect the actor's head while he came through the trapdoor. Um, it was, of course, just a stage he was going through. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, and so that has stayed even though that's you know that's a complete accident and it, it feels iconic and it feels like it works and it feels like it makes sense yeah yeah it, there's there's an interesting way that because so much of these familiar tropes of vampires seen in dracula and then in adaptations of dracula are sort of cobbled together from so many sources mm. There's an interesting intertextual play with the format of the novel, isn't there? So mm. the the novel is a an epistolary novel, essentially. Yeah. It is it is a series of documents that form <laughs> this story, which lend it this really interesting texture of credibility. It makes me think of how um HG Wells's War of the Worlds mm. when adapted as a radio production, famously scared viewers who tuned in partway through to this radio report of uh, alien invasion, there is something in the form of the novel. There's a sort of veracity to it being like yeah. diary entries. It, it, it lends itself a genuine, credible fear from the way that it's presented as an actual artifact. Mm -hmm. And I think in some way that, that ties into its origin that it takes so many sources of dracula mm. that if you try to research it you end up going to so many other texts it feels like not only is the text itself cobbled together from the documents of its characters but the idea is cobbled together from all of the documents of vampire mythology which in turn gives it this almost credibility where because you're reading documents it feels slightly real but because you know that Bram Stoker has pulled from so many sources, it also feels a little bit like, did he make this up? Or is this his way of accounting all of this mythology 
of real life spooky things happening. Are you saying Dracula was real? Maybe. I sort of drifted off a little bit as you were speaking there because you made me think about a couple of things. One, the first thing I want to say is I think that the form that the novel takes is really interesting uh, and it makes it very exciting. It makes it a much more complex novel than I remembered because you have to remember who's writing now, what have they seen, how much do they know about what's happening, um, where are they just geographically because sort of everybody has to come together eventually. It makes it quite a difficult novel to read, I think, potentially, Mm. especially because I'm not, as you know, I'm not very good at that. I'm not good at remembering lots of character names and lots of detail about plot. Um, But also, I love the sense in that novel that there's the letters and the diaries and everything and everyone's coming closer and closer and closer together. And you get this moment where everybody meets and then they decide to put all the letters and everything in order so that they as characters can understand what's going on. So they have this dossier of evidence. Yeah. And, And that's really meta and exciting because then you're thinking, oh, well, that's what I've just read. But then mm. I think that's the sort of failing of the novel is you've got this this tremendous sense of adventure and inevitability about them coming together. And then it sort of gets a bit like, and now we've just got to do the things in order to, to defeat the bad guy. That that second half of the novel, I find much less interesting. And suddenly the letters, the diary entries, it doesn't really make sense. Why would, it, why would it, they still be doing that? The second thing about that, now you're better at this sort of thing than me and so I want to ask you a question am I yeah. right in saying isn't Frankenstein also in the form of a diary and Jekyll and Hyde also in the form of a diary and I'm also Ooh. I'm also thinking um Telltale Heart although it's not it's not a diary has a which is a story about a man who has murdered somebody and can't help giving himself away because he's sort of so horrified about what he's done has like it's very very first person you're very much inside that person and seeing the whole story from that perspective it's got a very strong voice is there something about horror and a sort of heightened first person perspective that is my story view my story well, my question and story yeah yeah that so um yeah you're right at least parts of frankenstein um uh, the, a lot of it is first person narration i can't remember if it's actually uh, epistolary but there are letters at the start of it that sort of frame the narrative i my memory of it is that they they find dr frankenstein in the antarctic and then him counting the story so it sort of starts and ends but actually that your sense is that he's telling someone the story i always think that's very funny yeah when books do that and then it's like 300 pages later and you're like mate have you been sat there listening to this guy talk the whole time yes yeah yeah but there's something in first person narrative maybe yes and in a similar way jekyll and hyde sort of dances around in first person but if i remember correctly the final chapter of it is uh, henry jekyll's statement of what has happened and it starts with the sort of i was born in this year and doing this so it's all contextualized in the real world and it, it it's not something that has been abandoned so you think of some of the most popular horror films of the past couple decades you know, it really starts a specific format when Blair Witch is released. Yeah, and that's, yeah. oh, look at these tapes found and Paranormal Activity does it too. There is something so much more yeah. visceral and menacing because in some way, 
we often say that specificity is the soul of narrative, which is a line that comes from someone else. I'm not sure who, but it bounces around (laughs) because in the specificity of detail is where stories really come to life. And some people often mistake that for saying that you need uh, exquisite detail in what is being discussed, mm-hmm. that you need to define absolutely everything. But in these stories and the movies, the specificity is the specificity of format, isn't it? It's the way that uh, certain characters in these stories won't have all of the details mm-hmm. and they will have to try and piece things together because it is specific to the nature of existence. And if horror is about anything, it is about the nature of existence and the way that we fear things. I think also, I think a lot about how in horror, your success criteria for what is a good horror are very specific. So if you're watching, um, ordinarily, if you're watching a film, you want to be moved in some way or you want to mm. cry or you want to laugh. In horror, it's this very specific thing of wanting to be scared. And, yes. and horror films and novels, I think more than any other genre of storytelling, tend to get ranked. <laughs> so yeah. so you, you don't tend to get, I mean, you might get what's the funniest film, or you don't get what's the most romantic film, or, you know, what's the film. Mm. But you definitely get a lot of lists of what's the scariest film. And so I'm wondering, and this is the sort of, you know, in the place, is this is the place in our conversations usually where I suggest a theory and you say, no, that's nonsense, but I'm going to be brave and do it anyway. But I tend to think that the difference between a horror and any other kind of story where someone's getting killed, so for instance, a crime film or a thriller, Mm. is the subject position that you're being encouraged to take when you're watching it. So it might be, for instance, that if, uh, if there is a heightened... Uh, sense of first person perspective in a horror novel that's because the that success criteria of being scared depends on you feeling like this is actually happening and you are actually placed in that novel and it's easier to do that to someone if you're if you're encouraging them to really strongly identify with a with a single viewpoint the problem with dracula of course where that theory completely falls down is it's multiple viewpoints so um yeah but 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 i suppose there there is something there and i i feel like we're sort of reiterating the same idea here but it's worth exploring that you are creating these different perspectives that lend validity to it because Mm -hmm. what leaves you scared after watching a horror film is imagining the characters from it, imagining the monsters, imagining the scares and reenacting them upon yourself in some way. Uh, And that goes for whether you're watching horror films above your age rating and absolutely terrifying yourself or watching something like Goosebumps on TV, right? Because we're never really sure what's around the corner. And when we tuck ourselves in at night... We're never really sure what's under the bed. We we know in our heads, we know logically there is nothing or there's just whatever we've left there, but we're never really sure. So having those first-person accounts, the same way that movies do found footage, it does make it real. You watch an Avengers movie and the movie is over because it existed in third person. You know that it is contained inside itself. That's quite, but these... yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? You don't watch a movie, you watch a, a horror movie and you think, 
oh no, what if Dracula comes through that door and bites me and I turn into a vampire? Like you have that slight residual sense and that yeah. sleepless night. You never watch any kind of other film and think, oh no, what if that film comes alive and invades my... That's, yeah. that's the particular which is, fear. Which is why those found footage horror movies work that little bit more because even though you know it was fictional, the very presentation is this is something we have found mm -hmm. and commercialized and turned into a movie. Mm -hmm. So you're always going to have that tiny bit of fear, no matter how brave you are, that maybe it's true. And I suppose novels in the form of Dracula and Frankenstein and all of these stories which feel like accounts, no matter how much we understand that someone wrote them, someone thought of it and someone believed it, <laughs> no matter how much we think about that, there's always going to be this tiny thought that maybe Bram Stoker found a bunch of secret mm -hmm. documents and compiled them, or maybe Shelley found this story. Because a lot of the time, and it goes back to what we were saying at the start, these are not stories that exist in vacuums. It's not J.K. Rowling sat there coming up with Harry Potter. Yeah. This is something that is very, very specifically entrenched in a history of stories that people believe. Mm. So it's easy to start to believe it and be fearful of it. Yeah. That, it's interesting. It is interesting. Okay, quickly, finally, yep. scariest book you've ever read, scariest film you've ever seen. Oh, that's a really tough yeah, one. Yeah, um, asked it now, so you have to answer. Oh, can you go first? Well, it was really because I wanted an excuse to say everybody should read The Ratatat Mysteries by Enid Blyton. I know it doesn't sound frightening. I've read a lot of a lot of horror recently. Ratatat Mysteries, most frightening book I've ever read. Um, most, do you know what? Blair Witch Project, actually, it's not my favourite horror film at all, but it genuinely mm. really upsets me, <laughs> that film. Yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm I'm gonna say maybe. I mean, mine feels like a slight cop out. But uh, when I was younger, I really enjoyed just picking up any old trashy. These are the ghosts in your local area books. You used oh, to find them in places like the works all the time. Yeah. And and my nan used to love them too. So across called a, a, discovering ghosts. Yes, yeah. yeah. And across a period of five years or so, I probably end up with 20 of them. And they're all ridiculous stories where they will name a road and you'll be like, oh, that's a few streets away from me. And apparently there's a ghost woman there. And that was always just terrifying enough because I knew it was right around the corner. Do you still have those? No, no. Oh, that's a shame. Long gone. I don't know where they went. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> and... Scariest movie, um, The Woman in Black, um, the very end of it. Is this the Dan? Or, I, watched the, yeah. I watched the sort of cult, uh, late 80s, early 90s version recently. Is it that or is it the no, no, the, the Daniel Radcliffe one, which mostly doesn't remain scary, but if I remember correctly, the final shot of the film, uh, just before the credits or something, is the woman in black blowing out a match or something, mm. and that for some reason stayed with me uncomfortably long. I'm sorry to hear that. I think that one upsets my husband too. Are you, I've never asked you this. You, I, oh, I hope the answer to this isn't no. You have seen Whistle and I'll Come to You, haven't you? No. Oh, we'll watch that well, before Christmas. Yeah, right. That's, that, good. that's uniquely upsetting. Yeah. I mean, it really. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. 
Well, I'll talk to you next time. See you later.